Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and thanks for joining us today at Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we're continuing our series, The Triumph of the Lamb, with a message titled, The Song of the Redeemed. So let's turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 14, verses 1 to 5, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Everyone needs encouragement. You know, I once heard a story of a young boy who said to his dad, let's play darts. I'll throw and you say, wonderful. (laughs) You know, I've read that Abraham Lincoln carried a newspaper clipping with him. It simply stated that he was a great leader. And I know, I know some of us are going to say that that sounds like narcissism. Well, I suppose it might be, but it might also be true that everybody simply needs to be encouraged. We need it most especially when we're facing very difficult days. Well, perhaps you know that, or you can think of a time when you might not have gone on were it not for someone simply giving you a word of encouragement. I know that there are those that if we encourage someone, they think that we're only building up their ego. And so they withhold encouragement in the misplaced hope that it'll keep someone humble or keep their heads from getting too big. And that's not good. Yes, it is important that we remain humble. I mean, Romans 12, verse 3 does remind us not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought, but to think of ourselves with sober judgment. But listen also to 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, now that's encouraging. Yeah, it is. And then verse 11 says, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Do you see, real, genuine encouragement is not false flattery. It's not telling the person of average intelligence that they're the next Albert Einstein, or the person with moderate gifts in music that they are the next Beethoven. I know we are, that is in our culture, that there are those who are given to lather praise on people that far supersedes their accomplishments, and, and I don't think that's helpful. And I don't think that's a biblical definition of encouragement. But I think of the Thessalonian Christians. 1 Thessalonians 5 is a marvelous chapter about the coming day of the Lord, the day when Christ returns. Paul says that day will come as a thief in the night. People will be assuring themselves that the future holds peace and security, and suddenly there will be destruction. And for this reason, believers need to prepare themselves, not giving in to the ways of the world. But just when all that sounds so hard, Paul assures them, but your destiny is not to stand before the judgment and suffer the eternal wrath of God. Your destiny is salvation, and therefore, you need to encourage one another. You see the difference? When our culture encourages us, it often offers us insincere words of flattery. But when the Bible encourages believers, it encourages us with the truth. And in our study of Revelation, we come to chapter 14. As I often do, I, I like to make sure that we're getting the context of what it is that we're reading. So Revelation 12 to 14 presents us with a series of seven visions, visions that speak about spiritual warfare. Now, those seven visions are a part of an interlude in a wider section of the book. You know, prior to this interlude, we read about seven trumpets that are blown, And the seventh in the series brings us to the time at the end of the age. Revelation 10 verse 7 tells us that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God will be fulfilled. 
Now, before the end and after the seventh trumpet is sounded, John interrupts the action and he gives us seven visions which really are about the long warfare between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of Satan. There we see a struggle that will finally be culminated when the Antichrist is revealed. Now, just before the final seven bowls of God's judgments are poured out onto the earth, John shows us visions that explain what this drama is all about. The first vision is the vision of the woman and the dragon. The second, the vision of Satan being thrown down onto the earth. The third, the war between Satan and the woman, and then also the war between Satan and the church. The fourth, a vision we actually took two days to describe, is the vision of the beast and the false prophet, the vision of the Antichrist at the end of the age. We now come to the fifth vision, which is the vision described to us in Revelation 14, verses 1 to 5. So, let's read it now. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Now, I began by speaking about the need for encouragement, and that's precisely what this passage gives us. So I want you to imagine having been one of the seven churches to which this book is written. How would you have reacted, or how would you have felt, when you are told that the great beast yet to come, who makes war with the saints, actually will defeat them? You know, already some of those churches have had martyrs, and they're feeling hard-pressed. Now you're told that in the end of the age, what you are facing now is but a mere foretaste of what will eventually come. Would you feel discouraged? I mean, would you say, I don't know if we can hang on? Perhaps you'd be wondering how much endurance is necessary. But just like Paul writing to the Thessalonian Christians, you're told that you have a destiny, and that destiny is not to experience wrath, but salvation. In essence, that's what's being communicated here. Be encouraged, people of God. Your best days lie ahead. So let's begin with verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. So what we have in this verse is a repeat of what we found earlier in chapter 7, verses 9 to 17. There in verse 14, we were told, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, before we get to the 144,000, would you notice the picture of the Lamb? In chapter 7, verse 9, the 144,000 were standing before the Lamb who was at the throne of God. Now we see the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, a place that Psalm 2, verse 6 calls my holy hill. You know, as we will see as we progress through Revelation, Zion, or Jerusalem, becomes the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, and it is the dwelling place of the Lamb where all the saints worship Him. 
So it is in Zion that the Messiah rules over the nations. And so no matter how we understand this fifth vision, this is a vision of the final victory of the people of God. At this moment, the great spiritual warfare has ended. God's people are gathered in the new Jerusalem. They stand in worship of their conquering lamb. Now, as to the identity of the 144,000, I dealt with that question in some depth when we studied Revelation 7, so I don't want to go over all that data again. But at the risk of repeating myself, let me, let me very briefly say that, that from my perspective, because of the unusual nature of the listing of the tribes, make up the 144,000 in Revelation 7, and because of the uniqueness of the numbers, 12 times 12, 144, I saw then and I still believe now that the 144,000 are figurative and they stand for the entire people of God from all ages who have victoriously stood with their Lord, who have fought the spiritual battles against Satan, and who now stand clothed in white in heaven. I think the 144,000 are a symbolic picture of all of the redeemed of the Lamb. Now, this hopeful vision of the redeemed, rather than having the mark of the beast on their forehead, have instead the Father's name on their foreheads. They never belong to Satan or to his Antichrist. They belong to the Father and to the Lamb. And so they stand on Mount Zion because they belong to the Lamb. See, Joel chapter 2, verse 32 says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. <laughs> in the New Testament, the earthly city of Jerusalem and the holy hill of the Lord gets replaced by the new Jerusalem. So I'm reading Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And so here, the 144,000 represent all the redeemed who finally stand in the place that they've longed for. Some have suffered and some have been martyred. But here they are. They have not been defeated for they are victorious, a great festal gathering of those who are enrolled in heaven. We teach the Bible. That's at the core of everything we do at Back to the Bible Canada. To do so most effectively, we strive to use every medium possible to share the gospel. In 2017, we introduced an online video program called Truth in Life Today. And that program has since grown and evolved to provide excellence in Bible teaching that connects relevant issues of faith, life, and culture. Now the big news. As of April 2018, Truth in Life Today will become a weekly television program airing on Joy TV every Friday evening and Sunday afternoon and accessible online on YouTube, among other online options, all ready to be discovered at truthinlifetoday.ca. So this April, join myself, Dr. John Newfeld, and knowledgeable special guests on Truth in Life Today as we speak into issues like religious freedom, family, heaven and hell, abortion, and much more. For all the details you need, visit truthandlifetoday.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. In the fifth great vision, John tells us what he saw. 
The 144,000 are before the throne, and then he tells us what he hears. Verse 2 says, And I heard a voice from heaven, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. You know, in the very beginning of Revelation, that is in chapter 1, verse 15, we were told that the voice of Jesus was like the roar over many waters. And then later in Revelation 6, verse 1, we heard of one of the four living creatures that are continually before the throne of God, and that living creature speaks, and his voice is like the voice of thunder. But here in Revelation 14, it is but one voice who both has the roar of waters and the sound of thunder. Now, John doesn't tell us who it is that's speaking, but we know immediately that this voice comes from the presence of God. But the latter part of this verse says, the voice was like the sound of harpists playing their harps. And then later in chapter 15, verse 2, we're told of those who conquered the beast, but they are depicted with harps held in their hands and they're singing. But here in chapter 14, our passage, the voice from the throne sounds like harps, and at the sound of his voice, As we're going to see in verse 3, everyone begins to sing. So let's reread verse 3. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. Now this matter that heaven is filled with singing, it's, it's fascinating. You know, back in Revelation 5 verse 9, well, let me read it. The context is that the four living creatures before the throne have just fallen down before the Lamb who is Jesus, and they worship him because he's worthy to open the scroll. And verse 9 says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You know, in essence, what they're singing is a song of redemption. Jesus, by his blood, by his death, has rescued his elect from their sins. They were made into the people of God, and they will serve as kings and priests for eternity. You know, in essence, this is also the song in our passage here in Revelation 14. The four living creatures have sung to Christ, and now in the presence of the four living creatures, the 144,000 also sing in praise of their Redeemer. But in their case, that is, in the case of the 144,000, they actually sing a song that no one else can sing. So what does that mean? You know, I've long found 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 to 12 to be one of the most fascinating verses in the Bible. The passage begins with the words, concerning this salvation. There's the theme. Peter wants to tell his readers something of the salvation they have received. And then he talks about the prophets who prophesied about what the Christ would do for his people. And then he speaks about the sufferings of the Christ and of his subsequent glory. But in the last part of verse 12, in this passage, it says, things into which angels long to look. It's as if Peter is saying, there are things that we know that angels don't understand the way we do. And the question as to what that is, well, that's already been answered. It is, as Peter has said, concerning this salvation. It's a fascinating difference between angels and ourselves. Those angels who sinned were thrown into gloomy dungeons. Their punishment is fixed, and they're not going to escape it. The sufferings of Christ does not earn them the forgiveness that is given to human beings who believe. Angels are not the reason Christ died. Angels have not experienced forgiveness or grace or mercy. 
God created human beings in his image, and it is on us, we the redeemed, who are the primary objects of Christ's saving works. The very reason for creation itself was so that God, who is rich in mercy, would pour out that mercy onto us people to the praise of his glory. God is glorified as he redeems his people. And it is for this reason that there is a song which only the redeemed can sing because that song is the song of praise for our redemption, that Christ was given for us, that God created the universe for us to rule over, that we have been shown the pinnacle of God's amazing love. But up till now, I have argued that the 144,000 represents all of the redeemed. And, And for that reason, well, verses four and five might sound surprising. There we read, it is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as, listen, first fruits for God and the lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found for they are blameless. You know, it's this description that they're virgins and that they belong to the first fruits and not to the entire harvest. Well, that's led a great many Bible teachers to conclude, well, the 144,000, whoever they are, Well, they can't refer to the entire people of God. So let's deal with both of these identifiers one at a time. First, that the 144,000 are all virgins. You know, it's long been believed, especially by those in the Roman Catholic Church, that there is a higher virtue to virginity than there is to those who are married. And often that idea is taken from 1 Corinthians 7, verse 7, where Paul says that he wishes that everyone was as he is, that is, he's unmarried. But he allows marriage as a concession, and so from that has grown the idea that priests should be unmarried. Now, of course, Paul's not saying that remaining single is a higher virtue. He's merely saying that being single frees him from time commitments that he now uses for his ministry. But he also acknowledges that men like Peter and others are also married to the glory of God. And furthermore, The Bible never portrays sexual relations within marriage as a lower form of spirituality. Every married couple should know that sex within marriage is to the glory of God. God is pleased when couples who have a lifelong commitment of fidelity with one another celebrate that commitment through the gift of sex, a gift that he has given and sanctified when it is used as he designed it to be. That being said, The Bible sometimes speaks of a kind of spiritual virginity. You know, in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2, Paul says, I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. In other words, faithfulness to Christ alone is portrayed in 2 Corinthians as virginity. Furthermore, the Bible often refers to idolatry as adultery. That will become overwhelmingly clear as later on in Revelation as Babylon, the city of unredeemed humanity, is pictured as a great prostitute. In fact, if you go just a little later on in Revelation 14, just down from where we're studying, please notice verse 8. It speaks of how Babylon has made the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And so given the context, it seems clear that the virginity that is spoken of in Revelation 14, verse 4, is the kind of virginity that only the redeemed can have. They have not been unfaithful to their Lord, Jesus Christ, and that's why they're called virgins. Okay, but what of the reference in verse 4 
that says the 144,000 are redeemed from mankind as it says first fruits for God. Now, if you know the Old Testament, you know that the first fruit is the first part of the harvest. You know, when a first fruit harvest is brought in, well, that's done in faith that there's still a large harvest in the field waiting to be brought in as well. So in the same way, when Jesus is called a first fruit, it means that his resurrection is the first and that following him is a great harvest of resurrections that will follow after him. And so to the most part, the idea of first fruits is the idea of the first portion of more to come. But I've said that the 144,000 represent all of the redeemed of the Lord and not just the first part of it. Well, am I right about that? Well, I think so. You see, in James 1 verse 18, the word first fruit is used in a different way. There, James refers to believers as a kind of first fruit of his creation. Now, in that passage, first fruit refers to the best that a harvest can produce. God's redeemed, then, are the best of all that God has made. And that's, I think, how John is using the term here in Revelation. And so I think of how John describes the great throng before the throne. They've defeated Satan and the Antichrist. They didn't love their own lives unto death. They are undefiled. They've not committed adultery on Jesus. So they're the best of all that God has made. No lie is found in their mouths. They're blameless before God. Of course, that doesn't mean they're perfect. It simply means that this group has refused to worship before the altar of this world or the altar of the Antichrist. And although they were shamefully treated in this world, they are highly prized by God. And when all that's said and done, they will sing the song of the redeemed, a song that no one else can sing. This is their singular honor. So how encouraging is this? Well, it's as encouraging as you can possibly find. You will be included among those. John, given all that you've talked about today, can you give me a quick sense of really what is the purpose of worship? You know, worship as we see it here uh, is, a, is a declaration of the great and mighty deeds of the Lord. And I think that's what worship should be doing. We should be recounting what God has done. We should be recounting his greatness. And we should be remembering his rich mercy that he gives to us. And so I, I think that those are basics of worship. And even though worship involves the emotions and everything else, it does involve recounting the great deeds of God. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. The Partner to Tell Monthly Partner Program was launched in 2012. And since then, we've received blessing after blessing as people from every region in Canada have begun to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada with a regular ministry gift every month. The response has provided a wonderful financial foundation for ministry and a confidence that the work that is being done is in a very real way impacting lives for the kingdom. This year, we're praying for an additional 100 Partner to Tell participants. Joining this group not only allows us to sustain ministry programming, but to prayerfully consider where the Lord would lead us next. Monthly partners are both a foundation and force for this ministry. We pray you would consider joining this incredible group of ministry friends today. All you need to do is call us at 1-800-663-2425 
or visit backtothebible.ca.